0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. The joy of completing a written book comes from hours of clacking words onto a keyboard, trying to find a way to string them together to make any sort of sense. Suffering precedes joy. And that same principle is established in the pages of Scripture, not just as a physical reality, but as a spiritual one. Israel wandered in the wilderness before they came into the promised land. Jesus went through the sufferings of the cross before the victory of his resurrection. The Christian life in the New Testament is described as a pilgrimage of suffering until we enter into our heavenly rest. And the same pattern, suffering precedes joy, is the same pattern in David's life as well. David is God's chosen king, But before the Lord brings David into the throne, David enters into a time of suffering. As Saul's murderous intentions become clear, David is forced to flee the house of Saul. And so David is now on the run, a fugitive in Israel. He is a nomad hiding in the wilderness. David's journey of suffering in the next few chapters parallels that of Israel's journey through the wilderness, and even that of his son Jesus' wilderness temptation. And though the difficult days are ahead for David, as we'll see in the coming chapters, the Lord will sustain his servant over and over again. So as we cover 1 Samuel 21 through 23, I'm going to have to summarize some of these sections just due to time. But over the course of these three chapters, I want to show you from God's word this morning four different ways that the Lord sustains us in suffering. Four different ways the Lord enables us and sustains us during that suffering. So as we follow David to the city of Nob, we're going to see the first one of those ways. So let's pick up in chapter 21, starting in verse one. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything about, of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such a, in such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So after an emotional goodbye with Jonathan in the last chapter, David is on the run, and he runs to the city of Nob, which had become the center of Israel's worship after the destruction at Shiloh. So though the Ark of the Covenant is located elsewhere, here it seems to be that the tabernacle and the priesthood are all now operating at Nob. And as David seeks refuge in the town, he meets the priest, Ahimelech. The priest, Ahimelech, was the great-grandson of Eli. And upon seeing David, we see that Ahimelech begins to tremble like the Bethlehem elders when they saw Samuel coming into town to anoint David. Ahimelech fears getting caught up in the rumored growing tensions between Saul and the son of Jesse. So no doubt, hearing of the escalating tension of the two men, so Ahimelech inquires, David, what are you doing here? Why are you coming to town? And David lies. And he tells Ahimelech that he's on a secret mission from King Saul, and it's interesting that the narrative here puts no moral judgment, positive or negative, on David's actions. It simply describes what David does. David deceives Ahimelech in order to protect the priest, granting him deniability should he get in trouble for aiding David. And Elimelech can't get into too much trouble for aiding and abetting a fugitive if, if, if David's on a royal assignment, right? Or can he? And as we'll find out, David underestimates the evil that King Saul is capable of, as we'll soon find out. And his deceit actually puts Ahimelech in in very grave danger. But David requests something to eat. But Ahimelech informs him that the only thing available to eat is the bread of the presence. There were 12 loaves placed in the tabernacle and switched out every Sabbath. And under the law, these loaves were only to be eaten by priests. But for the sake of mercy, Ahimelech grants an exception to that rule as long as David and his companions were ceremonially uh, clean. Sexual activity made a person unclean for a time, but it was the practice of the men engaged in military mission to abstain from sexual activity until the assignment was over. That was the custom. Now, that custom will create a problem for David later when Uriah will refuse to go home and be with Bathsheba, but for now, it works to his advantage, right? Because David and his companions were clean, the priest went ahead and granted the exception out of mercy and allowed them to eat of the bread of the presence. Now, David's eating of this bread of the presence indicates that this all most likely happens on a Sabbath day. Jesus would refer to this event when addressing the Pharisees' criticisms of his disciples for plucking heads of grain on the field, rubbing them in their hands, and eating a snack on the Sabbath. Jesus would tell the Pharisees in that account that you do not know the word of God, nor do you know what it means when the Lord says he desires mercy and not sacrifice. And so, as Jesus confronts the Pharisees with their mishandling of the scripture, he tells them that the new David is here, that he is the greater temple, and that he is indeed Lord of the Sabbath. The law prepares the way for the king. And here we see one of the first ways that the Lord sustains us in our wilderness journeys the Lord provides for our physical needs, He provides for our physical needs. As David begins his journey, eating the bread of the presence here echoes back to how the Lord sustained Israel with manna from heaven. The Lord provided the physical nourishment his anointed king needed, meeting his needs, keeping him nourished, keeping him fed. And even though the journey ahead for David will be difficult, we see that the Lord will continue to sustain David in his suffering. The entire Christian life can be described in a way as a wilderness journey, but there are certain seasons of that life that feel especially wild in the wilderness. Seasons of trial, seasons of suffering. You might be in one of those right now. They await us. But as Jesus said, blessed are those who give a cold cup of water because he is a disciple. The Lord is faithful to provide our daily bread and the sustenance we need to make it through those times of trial. And so even though as David is refreshed, we get an ominous aside in verse 7, indicating there's an interloper who's watching and observing the scene. Pay attention to this, because this will come back later this morning. Look at verse 7. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite the chief of Saul's herdsmen, Doeg the Edomite. Remember that name. The Edomites come from the line of Esau, and the Edomites had a history of conflict between God's people over and over again. And it seems like Saul recruited him out of Edom to be his chief herdsman. Now, Doeg is sort of introduced here as an anti-David. While David is the shepherd of Israel, Doeg is the shepherd of Edom. In more ways than one, Doeg will be an anti-David, indeed an anti-Christ. But David was not only famished, he was also unequipped. And so when Ahimelech inquires of Israel's famous commander, David, why did you come to me without a sword in your hand? David explains that he left in such a hurry, but he didn't have time to grab one. So Elimelech offers David to take Goliath's sword, which somehow became stored at Nob. Perhaps the the main motive of David's traveling to Nob was actually to retrieve Goliath's sword as a way to aid him in the difficult days to come. The sword of Goliath symbolized the Lord's victory. While a shepherd boy, David was inexperienced with such weapons. He couldn't handle them. But now David is a mature and seasoned warrior, and he is the exiled heir to the throne, and he needs the weapon of the Lord's victory to help him face the battle of suffering that awaits him. And then as we continue in the chapter, in a strange move, David leaves Nob, and he decides to go to the city of Gath. That's a strange choice. David, with Goliath's weapon in hand, goes to the hometown of the Philistine champion. Perhaps he hoped to hide out there as an anonymous mercenary, but he's walking around with Goliath's blades. So I'm not sure how anonymous that would be. So if David knew that they would recognize him, perhaps he had hoped that the king of Gath would have gladly received the exile Israeli champion into his own ranks as kind of hitting the jackpot in the free agency market. But, but, but David does not find a warm welcome at all. In fact, he finds himself in grave danger. When they recognize who David is, they seize him, but David feigns madness by drawing graffiti on the wall and having spittle down his beard. And David's shtick fools the king of Gath And he lets the madman go free. I've got enough madmen around. I don't need another one. And so from there, David escapes. He takes refuge in a cave. And as David continues to hide out, we see a remnant of Israel begins to grow around the Lord's anointed king. Let's pick up reading in chapter 22, verse one. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah, Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herath. Those rumors of David's hiding spot in the wilderness began to spread. David's family Anxious for their lives, begin to make their way to David. In addition, all the other outcasts of Israel begin to find their way to David. And look at the descriptors here: these are the distressed, the debtors, the bitter in soul, most likely against Saul. Right? They gathered around David. The leaders of Jesus's day accused Jesus of the company that he kept, tax collectors and sinners. But like Jesus, David organizes his ragtag group of followers and he becomes their commander. And he begins to assemble here an impressive fighting force of 400 men. So David goes to Mizpah to make an appeal to the king of Moab to shelter his family for the days to come until David knows what God will do for me. So perhaps the Moabite king was willing to aid David because of David's family connections. If you remember, David had a Moabite in his lineage. His great-great-grandmother was a Moabite named Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. So little did those ladies know at the time, Ruth and Naomi, that Ruth's Moabite lineage would actually provide shelter for her great-grandchildren, but it's just like that. The Lord works in mysterious ways. And so they're given shelter. But we also learn an important information here about this passage is that the prophet Gad is also with David, bringing the word of the Lord to David's growing forces in the wilderness. We've seen over the course of 1 Samuel that King Saul ignored the voice of the prophet. And so the Lord rejected Saul as king and ceased to give him his word. And as the prophet Samuel left from Saul, so did God take away his word from Saul. But here we see an alternative kingdom being established. Here we see the king God has chosen for himself in the wilderness with a growing kingdom, with the voice of the prophet in his ear the Lord is now guiding and directing the commander of the wilderness militia. The word of God is absent from the ear of Saul, but it is in the ear of David. And unlike Saul, David hears and he heeds the voice of the prophet of God. And here we see a second way that the Lord sustains us in suffering. He sustains us by his word, by his word. The Lord doesn't leave us without instruction. We have the writings of the prophets and the apostles recorded for us in the pages of scripture. We have in our laps right now the very word of God. And praise be to God that when we go through seasons of suffering and trials, the Lord has not left it to ourselves to figure out how we are to live and what we are to do. No, the Lord sustains us in the dark by giving us the light of His. Word. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. While God's people should always, always regularly and study the scripture, regular meditation on the Word becomes paramount in times of trouble. In those trials, we need God's Word. When times are hard, we have this tendency to rather quickly shut our Bibles when we're going through them. Perhaps we're so paralyzed by fear and we just feel so stuck that we, we just are negligent and we actually fail to take up the Bible, we don't feel like it, we're worried, we're anxious, we just don't go to God's word. Or perhaps we're just all too quickly to take matters into our own hands, shutting our Bibles to follow our own instincts, to do what we think is right, to do what we think ought to be done. Whatever the reason, we neglect the Bible in times of trial to our own foolishness because the scriptures are the means that the Lord sustains his saints in suffering. But while David, though, is flourishing in the wilderness with a growing army, with God's prophet in his ear, we switch scenes to the menacing King Saul, who will be sitting under a tamarisk tree with a spear in his hand. You remember, if you've been following along the last few weeks, the spear symbolizes just how Saul has become a king like all the nations, choosing for himself Goliath's preferred weapon. Goliath is now ruling in Israel. And so Saul sits with the spear in his hand under a tamarisk tree, a foreshadowing of Saul's future, because Saul's bones will be buried under just such a tree. And as he sits with that spear in his hand, King Saul not only descends into further madness, but begins to spiral into unspeakable evil. Let's begin reading in chapter 22, verse six. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. While David has the prophet of God guiding him with God's word, Saul's own servants stay silent. Even his closest family relatives, his own fellow Benjaminites, make no attempts to help Saul. Saul thinks it's all just a conspiracy. We see his delusions spiraling out. Saul doesn't trust the Lord. We've seen that already. Saul doesn't trust his own men. We see that here. No one speaks up as Saul begins to berate them for not coming to his assistance and coming to his aid. But there's one guy who does, Doeg seeing his opportunity now to earn the favor of the desperate king, he shares that he saw David at Nob talking with Ahimelech, a little suspicious conversation, some exchanging of food, it was a giving of the sword. That's exactly what Saul wanted to hear. And so he goes and he takes Ahimelech, he brings all the priests in for an interrogation. Let's keep reading in verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has arisen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain of your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Saul accuses Ahimelech of treason conspiring against him by giving divine guidance to David, by giving bread to David, and by also giving him a sword. And notice the paranoia that's beginning to spiral out of control in King Saul as he now believes that David is now actively working to kill him, actively working to execute Saul and overthrow his rule. David has no intentions of the sort. In fact, we'll see in coming chapters, David has opportunities to kill Saul on two occasions. He abstains from them both but he accuses, though, here of Ahimelech of helping David execute the king. He accuses him of treason. Ahimelech confesses to his ignorance and confesses to his ignorance of the fallout of the relationship and pleads that King Saul would not impute any sort of malicious motive to his actions. He's helped David on multiple occasions. Why is this occasion any different? He was only trying to honor the king, not betray the king. But Saul's become so blinded and by his jealousy and by his paranoia and by his sin that he confuses the innocent for the guilty. And so Saul does the unspeakable. He orders the execution, not just of Ahimelech, but of all the priesthood of Israel. Let's keep reading in verse 16. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. The servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. As Saul gives this order here, his servants refuse to do it. They refuse to comply. They refused to raise their hand against the Lord's priests. These are the holy men of Israel. These have been the ones who've been set aside to intercede for us before God and to lead us into worship at the tabernacle. How can we raise our hand and slaughter them all? The soldiers refused to, to, to go with the orders, particularly for the irrational, illogical, and insane reasons that Saul proposes. But King Saul needs someone to do his dirty work for him some servant who is foolish enough to comply with his murderous requests. And so he turns to that sycophant Edomite named Doeg to spill the blood of the priests. Doeg is all too ready to fulfill the orders of King Saul. Let's read in 18. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. If we had any doubt at this point, truly Saul has become a king like all the nations. He is now turning his sword against the very priests of Israel. Doeg slaughters 85 priests on that day, and then he carries out the complete destruction of the city of Nah. You might remember a few chapters earlier when the Lord commanded Saul to carry out the ban, meaning the complete destruction of a city against the Amalekites, Saul was unwilling to go through with the orders. He was unwilling to obey God in the complete destruction of the enemies of the Lord. But Saul is all too eager now to engage in a holy war against Yahweh. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, the Lord states that if a city in Israel goes astray after other gods, Israel should destroy that city. But Saul orders the destruction of Nob because they were unfaithful to him. In a shocking revelation, Saul has become a king of the nations by making himself God of the nation. And so he destroys God's priests who are now threatening his authority. Saul has become a king, raging and plotting in vain against the Lord's anointed. He is a Philistine in every sense of the word. And as we consider the devastation at Nob and at the hand of Saul, and his servant, Doeg, we do have to pause here for a moment and remember that there will be enemies against God's people until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. It's a reality of this fallen world that we live in. Those in political power often use that power to suppress, if not seek to eradicate, the people of God. Whether it's state-sponsored persecution of Rome, as the early church experienced, Whether it's the forced registration of churches of Chinese communism or the threatened exclusion of opportunities in secular American culture, the serpent will always strike at the heel of the children of promise. The Apostle John warns about this in his letters in the New Testament. He warns the church not just to expect a antichrist, but many antichrists in the plural. Here's what he says in 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And, but John, how do we know who are these Antichrists that the church will face? John tells us, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the son. Doeg is the anti-David. He is an anti-Christ. See how the shepherd of Edom contrasts with the shepherd of Bethlehem. But Doeg finds himself in that long pattern, along with his master Saul, of those who oppose the Lord, who deny the Lord's anointed. All who reject the father and who deny the son functionally become anti-Christ's. And it ought not to surprise us that there are those who oppose God's king who rebel against him in wicked, aggressive, and often even violent ways. But though the nations rage, there will be none who will stand ultimately before the Lord's anointed king. Church, there will be violence for us today, but promised victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who oppose the Lord We'll find a fate similar to the end of Doeg. It's interesting, Doeg disappears from the narrative after this wicked slaughter and destruction of Nob. But we don't need to be told about what happens to Doeg to know what's coming for him. The events of Nob inspired David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, to write Psalm 52. And David heralds in that psalm God's forthcoming judgment upon Doeg. He sings but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. So God's word proves true. In the sovereignty of the Lord, though, we see that Saul's wicked slaughter of the the priests of God actually fulfills God's word against the house of Eli given back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Verse 33, you might remember the Lord's judgment. Let me read it for you. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Just as the Philistines destroyed Shiloh as an act of God's judgment upon the house of Eli, so now the Lord uses wicked King Saul to destroy Nob, To complete that judgment. There is one lone survivor mentioned in the destruction of Nob, and it's verse 20. Ahimelech's son, Abiathar, the lone survivor of Eli's house. At the end of chapter 22, we see that he flees the city, and he seeks refuge with David's merry men in the wilderness. But while Saul acts like a king from the nations against God's people, we see that David does the opposite. He rises up to defend the people from the nations. David gets a report of the Philistine menace encroaching, fighting against the city of Kiela, and he consults the Lord with what to do next. Let's keep reading in verse 1 of chapter 23. Chapter 23, verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kiela and robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow, so David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When David first hears about this Philistine raid on Keilah David feels compelled to intervene. He loves the Lord. He loves the people of God. And even while he is a fugitive, the shepherd of Israel feels compelled to intervene, to assist, to defend the flock of God being destroyed by Philistine wolves. But David, though, doesn't do what he thinks is best. What does he do? He inquires of the Lord. The Lord gives him the answer. Go, attack the city and save it. And David announces to his growing army the marching orders of the commander. And the soldiers are fearful. They're hiding from their lives, from the King Saul in Judah. How much more fearful will this small militia be when they have to go before the Philistines? Yet David consulted the Lord again, ensuring that he did not act without the Lord's approval. And the Lord promised yet again, David, I will give the Philistines into your hands. And David responds to the fear of his men with the promises of God's word. And he leads them fearlessly to save the city. In contrast to Saul, we see parallels just emerging over and over again between these two men. David's action hangs on the word of the Lord. While Saul often acts presumptuously without waiting for the prophetic word of God, sometimes he just outright disobeys God's word. Sometimes he rationally takes action according to his own impulses. David, on the other hand, submits himself to the word of God over and over again. Saul is a man without God's word now who now acts according to his gut reaction. 85 priests, dead, dead. But David restrains his actions by the word of God. Let me ask you, in your trials and your tribulations, do you submit your plans and your desires to God's word? It's easy for us to begin to be like Saul, making impulsive decisions, reacting according to what is best in our own eyes. Israel tried to do that in Judges. Go back and read how that ended up. May we strive like David to humbly submit ourselves to God's instruction and act with fearless obedience. However it is, he may direct our steps. During David's exile in the wilderness, we see that this remnant of Israel begins to form around him. And we're reminded here that God's true kingdom exists even in the false kingdom of Saul that he has a remnant for himself. In the wilderness, we've got the anointed king, even among the rejected kingdom of Saul. We've already seen that the prophet of Gad has come and is now prophetically giving him God's word. And then we also see that Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, also comes, and we're told in important detail about his arrival in verse six. Look at verse six of chapter 23. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David from Kiela, He had come down with an ephod in his hand. After the destruction of Nob, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, brings with him the ephod of the high priest. The ephod represents God's presence among the people in a very similar way to the Ark of the Covenant. And here we discover a third way that the Lord sustains us in our suffering. He provides his presence to us. He provides his presence to us. In contrast to Saul, David has God's word represented by the prophet, and now he's got God's presence represented by the priest. Here is the true kingdom of God in the wilderness. What what a comfort it is to our own souls when we go through difficulties to know that the Lord will not leave us nor forsake us, that we have a high priest to make ongoing intercession for us in the Lord Jesus Christ that we all have the attending eye of King Jesus watching over us and advocating for us as our priest before the Father. And he has given to us his Holy Spirit, ensuring us that we always have his presence with us, no matter where we go, no matter what wilderness we find ourselves in. In summarizing this next section, we see that Saul hears about David staying in Kiela. He believes that David is now trapped, Now is his chance to get his rival to end David once and for all. And so Saul summons all the army of Israel for war to go siege David in the city of Keilah. And in hearing the news of the upcoming showdown, what does David do? What have we seen him do over and over again? He consults the Lord's priests. He urges him to bring the ephod near and inquires of the Lord, God, I need your direction. I need your help. I need your presence. And David asks God, Will the men of Kiela give up David when Saul comes. However, even though David had just come to save and rescue the city out of the hand of the Philistines, the Lord tells David that Kiela will happily turn David over once the siege begins. The city of Kiela is not a refuge for David, even after he just saved the place. So David and now his 600 men, notice how it's growing, 600 men leave the city and go into the wilderness. But Saul does not give up his search so easily. And so he continues to search for David. He begins to hunt for him in the wilderness, but look at what we're told in verse 14. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. As we've seen over and over again, the Lord is the sovereign one protecting David from Saul's hand. Through all the ups and all the downs of the wilderness journey, the Lord continues to sustain his servant. David, like our Messiah Jesus, has no place to lay his head. He's on the run, right? He's got 600 men in the wilderness that David is now responsible for leading, protecting, feeding, and hiding in the wilderness. The, The danger to his life, the burden of leadership that David felt, the exhaustion of living life on the run, no doubt began to catch up with David. It is exhausting living in the wilderness. But the Lord provided David the encouragement he needed once more from his friend, Jonathan. And the two men covenant together for a third time, once more in their last recorded interaction in the book. Let's read 1 Samuel 23 verse 15 through 18. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish, <coughs> and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Somehow, Jonathan learns David's location. He comes out to meet his old friend. Jonathan encourages David to not fear. Jonathan reminds David of God's promises that Saul will not capture you, David. You don't need to be fearful. He tells David that, David, you are going to be king And it is my intention to be right there next to you when it happens. Saul knew this, and it drove him crazy. You see, when David comes into the kingship, it is Jonathan's hope to abdicate the throne and to gladly stand next to his friend's side, supporting and serving the Lord's anointed king. But despite Jonathan's intentions, he will not live to see his friend ascend to the throne. Jonathan's days are but numbered, but the two men covenant together. And here we see a fourth way that the Lord sustains us in suffering. It is through the encouragement of the saints. Through the encouragement of the saints. The word of encouragement David received here from Jonathan no doubt strengthened David in his weariness. When we find ourselves in those wilderness seasons, sometimes the Lord sustains us through the word of encouragement from a trusted friend. Sufferings, to put a strain on us, a strain on our faith in the Lord's promises. The Apostle James talks about this, talks about how the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, so we ought to count such trials with joy. But in the midst of the pressure of the suffering, it is wonderful to have brothers and sisters who can exhort us every day as long as it's called today. One of the reasons the book of Hebrew warns us not to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, is because by encouraging one another, we do so all the more as we await the day of the Lord to draw near. You see, when you find yourself in the wilderness of suffering, we should rejoice and praise the Lord for our Jonathans who come alongside us to encourage us to strengthen our faith in God's promises. And one of the chief ways the chief means the Lord does that in the Christian life is through his people, the church. One of the things is what we're doing right now. is what I'm trying to do for you, encourage you to trust in the promises of God no matter your suffering. And praise the Lord for those in our lives, whoever they may be, whatever friend it might be in your life, who will help you and administer to you in your suffering and who will direct your weary and exhausted gaze off of yourself and your circumstances and put it on the Lord of hosts. The Lord who is able to save, the Lord who sustains us through every trial and tribulation. Praise those who point us not to ourselves, not to our pain, but to the promises of God. That's what Jonathan does here for his friend. Over these last three chapters, we've seen how the Lord sustains in times of suffering. Let me recap them for you just in case you missed them. First, the Lord sustains us by meeting our physical needs through the priest. The Lord gave David the bread of the presence for his nourishment. He provided David with Goliath's sword. David is nourished and refreshed and equipped for the difficult days to come. And in the same way, the Lord provides our daily bread amidst the difficulty of our lives. And we must trust in his ability to sustain us and provide for us. Second, the Lord sustains us through the giving of his word as the company of misfits began to gather around David in the wilderness, the Lord provided for David a prophet. And that prophet Gad directed David's steps as he ministered God's word to him. David isn't aimless in the wilderness. He's not trying to figure it out on his own, but he submits himself to the scriptures. And in the same way, God has provided his word for us in the scriptures. They are a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. In times of difficulty, we need the Bible And through every season of life, we have to turn our ear to God's word. Listen carefully. During times of difficulty, it's essential that we attend ourselves to the word of God. It is one of the means the Lord uses to sustain us. Third, the Lord comforts us with his priestly presence. After the destruction of Nob, Abiathar brings with him the ephod of the priest. God's presence is now with David. And so do we, through the high priestly ministry of Jesus, have The presence of God always available to us. The comfort of Christ is always present through the Holy Spirit that he has poured into us. And so no matter our trials, we can rest assured that the presence of God is with us and help us. Praise God that Jesus has not left us as orphans in our wilderness journey. God sustains us through the promise of his presence. And then fourth, the Lord comforts by sending encouragers. Jonathan met David in the wilderness to encourage him in a season of exhaustion. And so do we all need the fellowship of the saints to encourage us when we are weak and discouraged. We need brothers and sisters who love us enough to rebuke us and to point our gaze to Christ, to get us out of our pity party and point us to the promises of God's word, admonish us to trust in those promises and strengthen us in our faith for the days to come. And so as Jonathan leaves, Saul's hunt for David presses forward, and we get towards the end of this chapter, Saul gets dangerously close to finding and killing David. Let's let's keep reading in verse 24 of chapter 23. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Ereba to the south of Jeshimon, and Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so when he he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon, and when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David, and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Saul and his company get so dangerously close to discovering David. And at one point, Saul and his men are on one side of the mountain, David and his men are on the other side. David was as good as done for, as the saying goes, but the Lord comes to David's aid right before David is discovered. Saul receives a message about a Philistine raid and decides to give up the search and to go deal with the crisis. And so that place was called the Rock of Escape. And don't misunderstand the narrative of 1 Samuel. Don't misunderstand it. David didn't get lucky. The Lord sovereignly protected David. Through all of David's coming and goings, in and out of every town that we've seen him go in this morning, the Lord is protecting him. The Philistine raid and the messenger that reported it and the timing that message came was all directed by God's providence to protect his servant. David's wilderness journey is far from over. The time of suffering is not yet over. But yet, we've been reminded over and over again this morning that the Lord sovereignly sustains us in our wilderness. Suffering is a prelude to glory, and the Lord is quick to give us the sort of refreshment and comfort that we need along the way. After David's near capture, we're told that he comes into the stronghold of En Gedi. En Gedi was an oasis in the wilderness. The name means spring of the goat. It gets its name from the freshwater spring, right there in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the wilderness. David's arrival into the rest of that oasis is a reminder for us that even though David walks through the valley of the shadow of death, the good shepherd of Israel will lie down his servant in green pastures. He will lead him beside still waters. He will restore his soul. And so has the Lord sustained David's son, yet David's Lord. Jesus's life and ministry were one of constant suffering. Jesus' wilderness temptation was, <coughs> was just the prelude to his suffering and temptation throughout all of his ministry, culminating with the bookend of the temptation of the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet the Lord Jesus rested over and over again on his father to sustain him, and Jesus was faithful. Jesus was obedient even to the point of death. And in his sufferings on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. He died the death that we deserve to die. And so that anyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus would be forgiven of that sin and be made right, justified before God. And as Jesus accomplished his mission of suffering, the cross ushered him into the realm of glory. And so the road to suffering led him to resurrected and exalted glory. And as he is given now the name that is above every name. And the path of Jesus, suffering precedes glory, is the path that David foreshadows. It's the path where we are called to follow as well. We are called by Jesus to pick up our cross and follow him. Suffering precedes glory. And throughout the, the suffering that is the Christian life, the Lord Jesus himself will sustain us on that long, difficult wilderness pilgrimage of faith. The weary David receives refreshment from the waters of En as a sign of the glorious rest to come. And so too does the Lord Jesus refresh us and certainly promise to bring all of his weary saints into their everlasting rest. Jesus invites all the heavy laden unto himself and he will give them rest. Jesus invites us all to the oasis. He is the oasis for God's people and out of his heart flows springs of living water and that water that he gives will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life in our hearts. Whatever your weariness today, let me urge you to go to that well of living water. Come to Jesus and be strengthened for the days ahead, He will uphold you. He will sustain you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. He is faithful and true, and He will empower you by His grace to complete the journey of suffering and bring you into glory. And as the Lord sustains us, He does so in many ways. He provides our needs, He gives us His words, He promises us His presence, He encourages us with the saints. But all of the Lord's sustaining efforts gush forth from the heart of Christ. In your weariness, come to the oasis that is in Christ Jesus, and he will sustain you through every trial and every suffering and bring you with him unto glory.